um, maybe it's helpful to know this is called Trito Isaiah, which is just a way of saying third. So first Isaiah, Deutero Isaiah, Trito Isaiah is how people call these. Um, and, and again, the, the diction is very different. The syntax is very different from the other two Isaiahs, uh, especially in Hebrew. But you probably noticed in English, even in translation, thematically, this is really different material. Right, so so these are the these are the clues, and um, you know our our workbook I think tried to do a decent job of saying uh, the, the 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 time setting here, um, but but there are some maybe really hopefully helpful things to draw in at the very beginning if it's okay to do unlike normal. Um, Jesus's first sermon in Luke comes from this book. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me, right, and. Um, to proclaim, uh, release to the captives and sight to the blind and declare the year of the Lord's favor. And he leaves out the next bit. He leaves out the next bit um, to declare the vengeance of our God. So it's helpful to hear that, um, you know, in Luke, G- Jesus says that. And then he says, today the scriptures have been fulfilled in your hearing. And people get really mad. Like, they're going to throw him off a cliff, but then they decide not to. We, we don't really know why. He just doesn't. And people have really tried to conjecture why they're mad. One of the reasons is because he leaves out the verse, the vengeance of our God. He omits that. And, and it would be really weird to omit that because it's the second part of a verse. So I want to tell you something really interesting about verses. I'm going to close this door. We, we may, you may know this. It actually was an Anglican bishop. He was Catholic, but he was English, who came up with the whole chapter and verse system. So uh, for our Bible, it just sort of was made up. And by the way, sometimes when you see it, um, you're like, why does this chapter start there? Yes. And and listen, it's because it was made up. That's true of our New Testament, not our Hebrew Bible, though. That's the interesting thing. So the numbers and the verses came from this guy, but what our Jewish brothers and sisters have always done is had verses, not chapters. So, so I'm just going to give you an example. If you read Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and, and you get to chapter 2, and on the seventh day God rests... Well, that clearly belonged to chapter 1. That chapter 2 came from the English guy. What our Jewish brothers and sisters have always done is counted verses, and they've done something really interesting. They've divided verses in half in terms of sense, not length or word count or anything like that. And, And the reason they've done this is to help them have fewer errors when they copy the scripture. So what they would do, just to give you an example, is each verse is set apart, and let's pretend it has 15 words. Well, they, they, they write it, and they go back, okay, 15 words here, 15 words here. So it was a check, okay, got all the words. If they accidentally got sleepy and written one word twice, then okay, they could go back and check, right? So th- this helped out. The division came in the middle. Middle is funny. Sometimes the division comes 15 words in to 17. So the, the rabbis had put a point 
in each verse that, that splits it in terms of sense. Sometimes it makes sense to them, yeah, oh, okay. yeah. Now sometimes you look at it and you say that doesn't make sense to me. Now there's 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 times when it's relatively clear. Um, Can you explain that? Yeah, I want I want to explain it. Uh, it. It's it's not always it's not always clear. But let me just give you an example of this beautiful verse, Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Where do you think the split goes? Arise, shine, for your light has come, <clears throat> and the glory. Right yeah, there, and that is where the split goes. How nice, right? And, and, and actually, a lot of times in poetry, the split comes sort of as a as a hinge, and the second is a way of expressing the first, and that's called parallelism. Parallelism. We talked about that before. Not always true, though. Sometimes the way it goes when you get two verses is. Idea A, idea B, and then you'll get B prime, A prime in the next one. That's called a chiasm, right? It doesn't rhyme, but it might say something like, the glory of the Lord upon the nations, all will gather at the holy hill. Right? So holy hill is about glory, all is about nations. Does it make sense? Okay. Um, sometimes this seems arbitrary, like when you're reading Genesis, which is not poetic all the time, like it could be something about Abraham and his cousin, his nephew Lot. There's still one of these. It's called an atna in Hebrew. Now, when we read the Psalms, when we read the Psalms in church, in general, we've left the atna where the rabbis left it. Right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. They divided it that way because that makes sense sense to them thematically, right? Sometimes we look at where the rabbis have put it, and it tells us, even in a prose passage, how they've interpreted it historically. You won't know where the Atna is when you read prose, because you're not reading it in Hebrew, and we didn't leave that. Um, I know this seemed like a long talk about possibly nothing, except that what's really bizarre about what happens when Jesus preaches his sermon and leaves out that other bit is, is he leaves out the other bit. <laughs> so, so he doesn't complete the thought. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, today this has been fulfilled in your presence. He leaves out this part, which is the vengeance of our God. Some scholars say this is why people are really mad because people knew that verse and it's like Jesus let down God's vengeance. And they were very, very upset about that. But I want to suggest to you sometimes what happens, and we don't always get this, is that people knew their scripture so well that you could start a psalm and people were supposed to fill in the rest of it. Like when Jesus on the cross says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the first verse of Psalm 22. So we could take it literally. God forsook Jesus, although that's not really possible. He felt forsaken. Another way to hear it, though, is that Jesus was quoting Psalm 22. And if you read the whole psalm, it talks about our miserable condition, feeling abandoned, but how God comes. 
and delivers. So, so we've got a lot of options. So when Jesus leaves this out, is he leaving it out on purpose or does he expect people to fill in the blank? And there's a really interesting thought about this that I haven't read it anywhere else. So I don't, I don't know, it could be, it could be a crazy thought. Um, when the verse is being divided in sense, right, and it says, the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn, <laughs> it might actually redefine what vengeance is. So, human vengeance is when somebody hurts us, we hurt them back, right? It's always in terms of hurt being repaid. You, you never get revenge on somebody giving you something nice. You, you reciprocate. <laughs> but you don't get revenge on that. Does, does that make sense? Revenge is always about hurting somebody who hurt you, I, I think. So, so what if God's vengeance... Is hurting the person who perpetrates? Is that what... No, I'm suggesting what if God's vengeance is comforting people who mourn. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What if God's vengeance is forgiveness? Well, I'm trying to think why people would be mad. Yeah, why? Yeah, yeah. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Isn't that like vengeance? Because that's when you've been mistreated and things are just wrong and you want it fixed. Well, righteousness, righteousness really means like restorative justice. Yes, yes. Right. <laughs> Not retributive justice. Retributive justice is really close to vengeance. Really close. But let's be honest. When you get revenge, you're not really even about making things even. You're about like hurting them worse. Yes. So I think there's this really interesting question I'd ask, is what kind of vengeance does God wreck? I don't know. It's, not, it's got to be the peace of the kingdom. Well, that's what I'm wondering. And I'm actually wondering if that wouldn't make people more mad than leaving it out at all. And I could be wrong. The peaceable kingdom. Peace, yes, yeah, reconciliation. Yes. Well, but that would make people more no, don't fight that. <laughs> but uh, people with a warlock mentality. Okay, okay. Maybe in the back of your mind, it's like, okay, the other thing is really nice. We've, I've forgiven them, and we're, you know, we're very loving. And then, but something bad happens to him. Well, it shows him. I mean, is it still there <clears throat> that you want <clears throat> revenge, even though you think you've forgiven them? I don't know. And then I think the real question is, feel is not the right word, maybe do or hope. What does God feel? <laughs> what does God do? What do we hope God does? You still, are you really forgiving people or are you just kind of hoping they get what's coming to them? <laughs> well, and, I, and I'm going to be really bad because, boy, I think when a clergy member molests a child, there's hell to pay. But is that just what I want, or is that what God does? This is really tough. 
because part of me thinks I want God to do that but how is that different from the ways I've heard other people I mean it is different but is it different it's these are shades of degree and do I hope that God gets revenge on those people or is God's revenge different from mine because it's about restoration and forgiveness this is really really tough vengeance is mine says the Lord but what is God's vengeance well let's say for example you have this guy Saul and and he changes into Paul of course people still hated him because of things that he'd done I mean I don't know did he face something awful down the line did he have to pay back every job or two for everybody that he hurt I'm sure you're a lot of people. So he's got karma coming. This, I think, is the hardest thing about paying people back evenly. How do you know you've really done that? I mean, you know, listen, your brother hits you, you get to hit him back. But there's a difference in degree between a six-year-old and an eight-year-old hitting, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you know if you hit him back? I mean, this is, I think, curious thing about Merchant of Venice, right? You can have a pound of flesh, but you can have no blood. So, so how do you really know you got even instead of getting more? And to be honest, if I'm the hurt person, I'll err on the side of getting more instead of getting even. That's really, really interesting to think through. Now, I don't mean there's no accountability. I don't mean that. But, but if vengeance is God's, again, what kind of vengeance do we believe God has? If his purpose is to reconcile everyone, yeah, that's that's the ultimate purpose. And so, vengeance isn't something that he seeks because because you can't hurt him. You, know, you can hurt others, but you can't hurt him physically or mentally or any other way. So, if he's trying to reconcile everyone. Him, he may get angry because you're not doing what he thinks, but he doesn't. I mean, there have been a few instances where he has taken out the vengeance, the, the Babylonian captivity is exactly one of them, but it was to help to purify people. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, his vengeance was always to help them, not to hurt them. So, so this is going to sound really heretical because we haven't really decided that there's a purgatory. But if there's a heaven and a hell and there's not purgatory, I don't think I could believe in God. I, just, I don't think I... I mean, if hell is a real place and there's no purgatory to get that out of your system and go, well, I mean, I just don't know. I don't know. Because I, I think that's part of what this is asking us, right? I mean... Listen, I love things like hell to pay. I love that. But, but when I stop and think about it again, it's this really interesting thing about should people be punished eternally for something they do that's not eternal? Hurting a child is pretty darn bad, but it's not eternal. It's, I mean, it isn't. And most people who hurt children were themselves hurt as children. So what does God's vengeance look like? You should have known better because it happened to you. I mean, our brains didn't even work like that. 
and here's a really tough category, if you didn't mind me saying, because this was in the news the other day. It was in the news. So I know these people who adopted a kid out of a Russian orphanage when the kid was like four. And um, boy, what a hell of a time they had. And I just can't think of a better word than that, really. They did the best they could with this kid who turned out to be like unable to really attach to anybody, who was a master liar, but tricked people left and right because we just want to believe what people tell us. And when parents said that's not true, they said, you're weird parents. You know, I mean, they sort of suffered that. Went to rehab, went to inpatient rehab, um, committed a violent crime, went to jail, came out of jail on parole. The only way kid was going to get paroled was if uh, parents took him back at the age of 30. And... Um, Boy, like you talk about having PTSD as parents, and then you bring chaos back in your house. They took you the child back. They did. They did. Took child back. Seemed like things were working, but boy, it's really hard to know. And and then turns out, kids been going through cars at the age of thirty all summer long, mm -hmm. and and of course lying about it. And um, kid didn't need to go through cars kid hated being in jail and so what's God's vengeance look like for that because the research says that kid is never going to have a normal life can't kid's never going to be able to attach to someone like you and I can never going to be able it was there some studies done and maybe this is naive of babies it, yes that were, they were never touched or hardly ever yes. touched. Right. And, yes. all, and they never make it. Never, There's yeah. no rehab for them. No they can fake it. They can pretend right. like the world, the linear, logical people, and they can pretend like people are not out to hurt them. But they have to pretend because they'll never actually believe that. And they, they do that to manipulate the system. They, they manipulate. Or just to cope? Yeah. Just, to, just to cope because yeah. they, then they don't know what's wrong with them. I, I guess. Because there's just survival. There's yes. no right or wrong, there's survival. And that's true with Maslow's hierarchy, right? When you don't have your basic needs met, you can't think morally. Like, mor moral thinking is a luxury. That is so crazy in my brain. And that you can't rewire that, apparently. You can't. No, or no one's figured that out. There's no medicine. There's no therapy that seems to work. There's just coping. This and is and such a relief to hear because when I've said these exact same things based on science, mm -hmm. based on experience of working with people like this, what I've gotten back from church people is your faith is not good enough. You don't believe in God. There's something wrong with you because you believe Boy, I'll tell you, this experience has made me think there's something wrong with God. I just, I just, it's really hard. Yeah, yeah. It's really hard. Because that those children have no chance in the rest of their life. They have no chance. And I mean, they have no chance. And what do we do with them? Um, and boy, like I'll just tell you, because I knew these people and I knew a little bit about this issue. What are they supposed to do? What are they supposed to do? You know, and and uh, and for the kid too. Like, what's the kid supposed to do? Because the supposed to's break down. So, and I, I'm doing it in a really extreme case because I read about it yesterday. And, 
And because I think this is about extreme cases. Isaiah is writing to people that are trying to figure out their extreme case. So, so I think thinking about extremities is really, really interesting. And again, in a situation like I've described, what is God's vengeance? And you're right about this because when we read it and talked about it, it's like, geez, if that happened to you, that that would be so awful. You had nothing, nobody, you know, going back to the place that didn't want you there. Yes. Uh, that nobody. That you've never you, even been to. That you've never even been to. And you've been told it's great, and it's not. And it's not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just like, can you imagine? That? If. If, if reconciliation is God's vengeance, I guess I can think about it. And if when we pass away, supposedly we go to heaven, at some point heaven comes down here, whatever. But if you don't, if you don't recognize somebody else in heaven, and you're just up there. And if, if you don't, if you don't have any recognition of anybody else that you've loved or you've been able to be reconciled with, if you don't see those other people up there, then what would be the purpose of heaven? So I wonder if, and I don't know what it looks like. <clears throat> I wonder, I mean, I really, I think because we got to see it again this time, right? Is is when uh, the, the, the 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 wolf. And the lamb are nourished together. But, the, but when the wolf and the lamb recognize each other and say, we, we are now friends. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean maybe, maybe this is an interesting thing. It's not maybe a puzzle we figure out. I think the question is, do we hope so? I'm divided each day on whether I hope that or not because there's people I don't, because I want them to have hell to pay. But then I stop, if I stop and think about it, Right. Hell to pay isn't really even fair. So why do I, you know? So, so why do I want that? Like, why am I hoping that? Yes, but isn't the, the the worry of going to hell is that you'll never see the glory of God? You know, isn't the whole idea of believing in a God that you want to be able to experience the joy? of being with God. There's got to be some joy. So I'm glad you said that, because I'm going to tell you, we talk about joy a lot, and I think we don't get it very well. And, and, and I, I was at clergy conference, and there was this poet who talked about joy. Did I tell you this story already? No. Poet, poet was an interesting poet. And um, poet started out, poet has edited a book, edited a book about joy poems. There's a hundred joy poems in there, and some of them are really something. And some of them are like, why well, I don't get it. Uh, some, some poetry artists don't get yeah, I'm just going to be honest with you. And, and poets started by talking about this lady who was a poet laureate who said, and I'm summarizing what he said, she's had about four or five experiences of joy in her life. And one of them was when she was heavily on drugs, so she's not sure it counts because she came down from that and is really, really tough. And she said, between happiness and joy or comfort, material, physical comfort and joy, she might rather have the comfort. 
because joy exposes what she's missing in the rest of her life. So I asked the poet about that. That was very intriguing for me. And um, he said, well, I completely disagree with her because like, I just can't get enough joy. And I thought, well, uh, internally, I think I know exactly what she's saying because joy points out how paper thin most of our normal life is. I mean, real joy is like in some ways exposing. Like it's intoxicating and it's exposing. And this is going to sound really strange because I have these moments of joy with my kid what I see with one of my kids where the world is like such a big place like the world is a better place with my daughter like, like if something happened to her the world would be a darker place I actually believe that I really believe that I believe that about my children yeah and when, the, when I gave birth to my oldest daughter and she's, she's 56 now the, the great, and I was wide awake, I was not, had I no drugs or anything. The greatest joy was, was the birthing. Very painful, but birthing was, like, I mean, I, mean, I, I don't know about you, but, but it was like that. And um, I still, from time to time, look at her and think, you know, I've been working uh, with a man over months, a lot of months, who experienced a tremendous joy of coming to faith, that euphoria. Yeah. And now that it has settled down, yeah. he, he holds that as the, the criteria. And so this comfort, the normal life, seems so inferior in his yeah. mind to that, that there's, there's what's wrong with me, what's yeah. wrong with my faith, mm -hmm. you know, why can't yeah. I get that back? So that goes along with what you were with, saying. Well, and I think I've, I found in these moments where I look, it's going to sound really strange, but I think these moments of being absolutely present with my kid, and that's just to pick one, is very joyful, and, and, the, and then the bandwidth of the world is really wide. And it's almost so wide that I, 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 I tremble to hold on to it. Um, I had somebody come in. This is really interesting. I probably do a confession once a year. We do this rite of confession in the Episcopal Church. Most people don't even think we do that. We do it. We do it face to face. And it's really called reconciliation. It's not called confession. This person is really interesting because they combined it with their fifth step in their sobriety course. And... Um, what the person said that was really interesting is that the, the 12 steps is really not even about alcohol or drug addiction. It's really about being present. And they said that joy must be these moments in which we're actually just present. And that's an interesting thing. Present in ourselves and in one another. 
not worrying about the future or being shameful about the past. Yeah, and maybe just fully delighting in the other person for who they are or ourselves for who we are. And I think those are usually really short. Martin Buber wrote a whole book about this called I and Thou, how those moments are really tend to be short and sometimes they even surprise us. Like we can cultivate being open to them, but we can't control them happening. And the moment we think like, oh, I'm joyful now, is the minute it's over because we've wrapped up something around it. So it's like in some ways very effervescent and, and defies logic. I know how to be happy. I know that, kind of. <laughs> I struggle actually with that one too. But, but um, it's just this really interesting, interesting thought about being present. And so what if the way that God actually gets revenge is to be just really present and in joyous for how we are and what if that's the way God gets revenge at the end of time is that God invites us into that he invites us the, the revenge in into the joyful revenge which I'm undoing the word revenge the way yeah. God gets even is with joy <laughs> oh, okay, okay yeah I does that make sense? Yeah, I know, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm putting words together that don't go together. Well, well, it, it's but like, I think the prophet did that. <laughs> like when you, you said the re reconciliation, as a Catholic, we, I, I say reconciliation, I don't say profession, and I, and I don't go, uh, you know, like, and, and frankly, when you do the reconciliation prayer in the, the mass, service, in the service because maybe because I've been so ingrained from being raised Catholic about reconciliation, I take it very seriously. Yeah. I'll tell you, I had somebody, this I think is one of those joy things. I had somebody, I mentioned this story that I just told you about doing this fifth step. And somebody said, we don't do that in the Episcopal Church. And he said, no, we do. And, uh, and we call it reconciliation. And the person said, well, my therapist said I've only done one thing and like I'm okay with that. And I said, yeah, but here's the difference between me and your therapist. I get to say God absolves you of that. Yes. Not like, Precisely. hey, you, you put that behind you. Like, right. I get to say God is finished with that. Yes. Because, uh, boy, it's very rare that I thought in my life, I am really going to be complicit with the devil and I want to burn every bridge I can because I hate the world. Even in my worst thinking, I was not thinking, I'm going to be Satan incarnate and do evil. <laughs> I just was really mad and not thinking well. Or even it seemed like a really good idea at the time. <laughs> Five minutes later, it didn't seem like such a great idea. But very rarely have I thought, I just want to be evil. <laughs> so I said this to this person. This person said, well, I've done that once. And I said, well, then here's the great news, right? Is that like this, there's this thing where you get to hear somebody say, like, God's finished with that. The person said, well, I think I would do better going to a box where I didn't have to see you. And, and, and I think this is part of the clergy struggle. It's really, really interesting. Because, you know, back in the oh, even 30 years ago, Father knew best. Um, and we, we, we were uniforms and we weren't people. And I get how that can be helpful to us. Because I'm just going to tell you, like, I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily a great person. Uh, I've got some strengths. 
boy, I fall off the handle really quickly and I can be really petty. I have a hard time accepting gifts and like letting people love me. So, so look, I think I'm a regular person. And um, you, you know what's really interesting is this person I was talking to is a parishioner, but like I think kind of a friend too. And so this person was saying, I think, not directly, but indirectly, like, I don't know if I could tell somebody who knows me that I've done these things. And I think that's exactly the point. Yes. And the, then what would be important for me is to not have it a mystery who's talked to me, because we sat full on in the face, and me not to treat them any different unless I treat them better. <laughs> and I think we're afraid somebody can't do that. And that's where it takes like a real priest to be able to do that. But well, I, I think reconciliation between two people in a married couple. When, uh, well, and often you have a counselor between you and yes. helping you facilitate that. Uh, that that's reconciliation if it's done honestly and straightforwardly. And, and, but then you have to go back inside yourself and be able to deal with it yourself. It's more work it's than lot. not doing it. Yeah. It's harder than not doing it. I mean, that's why we have this shirt that says love is a hell of a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And we can do more together. Because we individually, I don't think, can even sustain this work. Like We need a community to make reconciliation possible. And, and this is a really interesting thing about the, what the prophet does. Who's in the community? Now, I don't want to be offensive, but it's not me, it's Isaiah. So if Isaiah offends you, that's fine. Who's in? Well, people who have had modifications to their genitals. We don't really have eunuchs nowadays, but we have transgender folks. I'm sorry, they're in. Well, no, because eunuchs, that was done to them, and transgender people choose that. I just don't think you can read this seriously and exclude transgender people, whatever you think about that. I just don't think you can do it. Um, eunuchs are slaves. That's true. Uh, eunuchs had earrings. So if you're against men with earrings, sorry, you're just not going to like this prophet, because <laughs> that's the deal. Who else is in? Foreigners. Who are the foreigners? Anybody well, different than us. Anybody yeah. different from us. Anybody different. Wiccans are foreigners. What, what, uh, what I was kind of, kind of, as I read that, and I, you know, the poet says, if they accept the Torah, then they're all in. And you know, and I know that the people coming back from Babylon and the people that were already there, but it heads about it. But it heads about this. Yes. And also, you know, the temple wasn't the most important thing anymore. It was the Torah. Because there was no temple. That's right. And so what I'm thinking about, as I think about, you know, when Christ comes along or when Mohammed comes along, how do they fit into the picture 
if they don't accept the Torah as the basis of life? Well, see, the wonderful thing about both of those individuals is essentially what they try to guide people into is a better understanding of the Torah. Okay. You know, if we think Jesus came to change the Torah, we didn't read Matthew, because I didn't come to change a jot or a tittle. What he came to say is, how do you observe the spirit of the law and not get lost in its letter? That's what I believe, right? Because Jesus wasn't a Christian. (laughs) He was Jewish, right? right? I mean, this is often lost on us. And, and, And I think it's helpful to hear, Jesus had a hard time with foreign people, too. He was amazed the Samaritan came back. He says, what, didn't I heal 10 of you? And only the Samaritan came out? And we could hear him saying, oh, he's just making an example. No, I mean, the guy was a human being. And he was raised, sorry to be culturally biased. I choose to believe that because, boy, there's hope for me. There's this Syrio-Phoenician woman that says, my daughter's sick. And he says, look, I don't give children's food and give it to dog, to female dogs. We have a word for female dogs. It's not nice. And it's not really a one that a man should ever use toward a woman, I believe. If women call themselves that, then that's up to them. But I can never call a woman that because it's so laden with baggage, right? I mean, it's tough. And Jesus calls her that. Sorry, I mean, he, he does. He calls her that. And, and she's like, yeah, even bitches get some crumbs. And he's like... Oh, well, you're right. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, like, I choose to read the story that he learns from her. And that shows his humanity. And it he, shows... He, he's able to shift his thinking. I, I think he may have been doing that to show the rest of us more than that. That, that actually he believed that, maybe that. He was just saying, you know, no, we're going to be compassionate toward everybody, see? Well, see, whatever we think about what's going on internally, he encounters a stereotype and leaves with a human being. And, and, and that means, like, we have that opportunity, and that's a higher way. Now, whether he did it for our benefit or it was authentic, either way, it's for our benefit to do it. <laughs> and, and, and in that sense, Jesus is doing just what Isaiah did, saying, like, listen, you guys are thinking that there's this old ways to be kept, that's fine as long as you realize everybody's invited into those ways. And this becomes this really interesting thing. We use the word conservative and liberal, and I don't think we use it always really well because the question is, what are we conserving? As conservatives, the question is, what are we conserving? And, and, and I think that's the invitation, right? Is, um, and notice, it's... It's, it's being pushed down that there's a, there's a permeable boundary in terms of the way we choose to order our lives, but it's always, it's always able to be entered. And it's not even that you have to be like us in all the ways that we often think. Because if you're, if you're Jewish and your genitals are affected in any way, you can't go into the temple, period. Now, I know there's no temple, but when you read this, the temple is like God's presence, and it's all around, so the genital-crushed people get to go, too. I mean, it's sort of by extension what he's saying. Well, even, even at his death, at Jesus' death, didn't he, is, is it accurate that he turned to the man who was on the cross with him, and he said, to, today, or tonight, or whatever, you will be with, with me as, 
in, in, in the father's, nice in my father's paradise or in paradise, which in means paradise. in the nice garden. So it's really interesting. One wonders what exactly he meant, but yeah, because Jesus ends up in paradise. Yeah, it's a tomb. Yeah, oh, but but. Because, because, yeah, because I think it passed. Yeah, of course, because we course. because we read the Bible so dang anachronistically and much to our detriment. I mean, I've told you before when when Jesus was around, there wasn't this fully developed doctrine of heaven and hell like we think. There just wasn't. So so paradise just means an ice garden, and um, that's where there were some tombs. And, and in some sense, it's really interesting to say, you, you know, whatever, however worthy enough, however unworthy you feel, at the end of the day, we're going to be together. Because <laughs> we're both going to be dead. It's really, that's an interesting thought. Because By the way, I, I, no, I actually think it's really encouraging. I mean, that's yes. fair, and then I think we can hear this thought like, hey, I'm not worthy, and I'm worthy to die, and whatever you think about worthiness at the end of the day, like, <laughs> God's answer is to just go ahead and die alongside us. I, I will say, Ralph, having been raised in early Catholic, where we go to conf- Catholic school, went to confession once a month and all that stuff, and stand in line, stand in line, uh, or once a week, sometimes once a week, stand in line, and, and I'm sure the priest, I mean, the priest sat there and listened to gosh knows what, uh, all kinds of silly things that these kids were just saying one after another, but the fact that he w- there was this human being who was supposedly, and we thought, blessed by the Catholic Church to forgive our sins, it was, huh, you just walked out just... Yeah, but if you went and redid that sin, this is where I think we got confession wrong. And I think the way reconciliation really works is it's not, it's not just about moral transgressions we've done. It's about even things that have been done to us that are separating us, sorry, from joy. So let me, I just want to tell you, as a parent, I make a ton of decisions about my kids. And sometimes I think, God, what if I had just done that instead and talk about a way of separating me from joy I didn't do anything wrong but I'm worried reconciliations for that there's things sometimes I can't get over and I was the innocent party reconciliations for that and if we just think it's about right and wrong and God's just like Santa Claus and whatever you know is on the naughty list that you don't confess then, you know, call in your stocking forever. I think we've got it all wrong. That's a heavy, that's a heavy thought to say, though. I mean, it's really hard, but we all do that, I think. But it's, we think, you know... I, this is, I think, the, the... I must have done something. I did something. This is a hard part about the prophets, like this prophet. I think he's right about what God's vengeance is like and how do I live into that. It's like, really, that's the hard thing. But but I but I think what we don't even usually do is afford ourselves to stretch our imagination to think that God's ways are so much greater than our own that we just have decided God is like us. So I think these this guy is trying to say God's ways are so unlike ours 
and you know, imagine to people who are having a hard time, arise, shine, your light has come. The glory of the Lord will rise over you. <laughs> I mean, how do we make that authentic? I don't mean just what we do, but how do we experience that authentically? That's a really interesting goal in our spiritual development. City gates are meant to keep people out. They're not meant to be open all the time, right? It's almost like God doesn't want us to welcome people to come to our church. God insists we invite people. Because <laughs> welcome and invitation are really different yes. things. <laughs> Just like toleration and respect are different things. I wish it said the Episcopal Church invites you. And then we have to decide to do what? To be like we are, to be yourself. I mean, we're still trying to work this out. And every, I, I'm assuming every church, every priest, every pastor, I would think, uh, worth its human, humanity would think the same thing. Oh, oh, no. <laughs> well, I think, and this I think is where the prophet becomes really interesting because I do think we have these thoughts about what we're supposed to conserve. And I really think that's a good word here. What are we supposed to conserve? I really agree with that's what every priest in every church should should, should. <laughs> but, should but my experience is that so many churches draw boxes mm-hmm. and we are the chosen ones whoever we Whoever's are in that congregation yeah. we are the chosen ones and everybody else is outside those lines and that's what hurts my heart and I, I, I think it's really hard because um, it hurts my heart too, but, but this is where I think that word sin becomes so important. I'm so settled in it. It's really hard for me to get completely out of that box myself because I'll tell you, right? When people use uh, the scriptures to be misogynist, I don't just feel sorry for them. Like I'm, I, I don't like them. <laughs> and it's really hard for me. And, and so, like, there is this interesting thing called liberal judgmentalism. And, uh, boy, it's tough. I had trouble with that last week. I encountered someone who was extremely judgmental. And I went home, and I was angry at that person. Rather than being angry about that thought process. Yes. And so I had to really work on my heart during the week to let go and, and believe that that person was doing the best that person could do. With what they had. With what they had. And so... Oh, man. It's so hard. Yeah. It's so hard. And I'll tell you, it weighs on me. I, I, this is an interesting thing. My wife is not a churchgoer. I've been very public with this, and so is she. In fact, when they called this, she made it very clear that they were calling one of us. They were calling just me, actually, not us. <laughs> and so... Um, there's this tough bit, right? Because neither one of us have really experienced the kind of community the church offers outside of church. So it's this woefully broken thing, and yet it's like the most hopeful thing that there is at the same time. And that's just really hard. Sometimes I think 
it would not be, I don't know, I don't want to sound really dreary, but there's some days where I think, you know, I'm just going to pack this yeah. in. Like, I just decide I'm just going to be done with this because, boy, like, we just love to go backwards sometimes. I just, we love to go backwards and be dumb, judgmental, crazy people. And, um, okay, I've got, <sighs> I've got to say something. I, Please do. I, but the day that we were, you were in there, and they were doing the acrobats and all that. Okay, you and your wife were sitting next to each other, okay? And when he, they asked for you to stand up, she was so, and I was standing, it just happened to be in a position where I could see. She seemed so proud of you. She put his, her arm around you, you stood up, and then, and then you, you were playing with her hair. It was this, this thought that I don't know how, I didn't know that about the fact that she doesn't, as yeah. in, I didn't know that. Yeah. But the way you two were, like, was so loving and supportive. So. Yeah. It no, had that's the same effect on me, Gracie. I said that. But do you so, know? But do yeah. you know why it becomes really difficult? Not only to like turn this into like ugly church business, but you know, actually, my wife's not really sure about her spirituality. Yeah. In general, she's pretty supportive of what I do. Like yeah, she believes yeah. in the job, and um, she thinks, in general, like like the thoughts and the conversation that we have are like life giving and helpful. But where the rubber meets the road, right, is that if she comes to church here as my spouse, first of all, she's not herself. She's my spouse. So she doesn't get to be herself. Second of all, and it's happened exactly once here, if I do something that somebody doesn't like, um, it's happened really only once. Somebody was really dirty <laughs> and really kind of nasty and wrote a letter that was secretly disseminated that included like not only how I made the wrong decision but how I was a bad parent. And okay. my wife said, see, that's why I can't go there, because that letter's about me. Absolutely. So it's, it's this tough thing. Now, I don't mean she's right, but part of, because it's not like you're absolutely right or wrong. Communities are messy places. Yeah. That's what I want to oh, say. Yeah. And, and how we, 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 we deal with the mess is, is tough. And sometimes we'll hop over a hurdle that was relatively high and we did that together and then here's this other low and we're like we can't do that one it's like well but 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 look how far we've come like why would we not just and it's 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 tough and again i know not to be judgmental but when these jehovah witnesses came to my house last week and they said does god call suffering and i said listen i'm a priest like i'm really comfortable with my answer like well we want to hear it and no they did not want to hear my answer they wanted to give me theirs and I, i just i didn't I wanted to be polite and I wanted them to leave and I don't know how to do that <laughs> all the time. I, I probably should have said, listen, um, I don't even know that I'm grateful for what you're doing, but would you just go? <laughs> just would you go? But that just makes you whole human. Yeah. You know, and when you're, you're, I feel kind of the same way, you know, when you get these phone calls at home and you know someone, you know, you know working their behind off, and you just hang up on them and you say, oh, my God. Well, I, I, I try to be polite to them, and sometimes they just won't take that. Yeah. You know, or I'll say, could you remove me from your call list? And they just hang up. And oh, yeah. I, I have a hard time with that. Um, they usually say, how are you doing today? And I say, yes. I, I will be doing a lot better if you will not hang up because I'm going to ask you to do something really important <laughs> to me. 
Now listen, I don't even know that it helps because I'm getting more calls than less. Um, but I do think that's a great question, right? And we can be really mad at the person on the phone. I remember one time I, I got a runaround from a doctor and I was just being tired of getting run around with doctors with Medicaid for my son. And I finally said one day, like, listen, you're a lousy human being. What you're doing to me is bad humanity. And the person said, no, actually, I don't think I'm a bad human. Like, I think you need to back off on that one. And let's talk about what we can do. And I was like, okay. I was like, okay, I think you're probably right. So I'm sorry. You know, but like, so that was a really interesting thing, you know. My most satisfying uh, experience with those kinds of phone calls is when my grandson was about two or three, I would just hand him the phone. Oh, man. And he would talk to them for a few minutes. And then he would say, we're going to the duck park now. I can't talk to you and hang up. So, <laughs> well, what I, what, what, what I often do is I ask a person for their own phone number so I can I mean, this is just really difficult to do, and, and, and again, it's, it has to do with a system, and this I think is part of the deal that we, we sometimes fail to realize, it has to do with a system that's huge, right? I mean, the, that person, they're not out to get your money for themselves, I mean, that's their job. Yeah, it's a dreary job. Yeah, so how do we not be nasty about somebody who this is like their employment opportunity? You know, it's just it's really hard stuff. It's hard because, listen, I hate that system. I hate it. I, I, the person who impersonated my email to get eBay gift cards, like that's just really hard for me. And again, maybe part of the deal is just to say vengeance is yours, God, which means it's not mine. And that's probably a pretty healthy perspective is vengeance is the Lord. So that means don't you all go doing it. Whatever that looks like, you just have to sort of allow God to have that. Yeah. I don't know the answer to that. You, you, you did read, though, this is where we got our hymn, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, right? Yes, yes, yes. No, I didn't. I didn't see um, This is about treading out the wine press where the grapes of wrath are stored. Um, that's in 63. Why are your robes red and your garments like theirs who tread the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their juice spattered on my garments and stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of my redeeming work had come. So here I think is this really interesting question, right? Oh, I trampled them peoples in my anger, I crushed them in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. So that's really tough. Again, that's an image of, like, revenge. But if you push on it just a little bit, right, I mean, the reason you trod on grapes is not because you hate them, it's so you can make some wine. <laughs> and in the ancient world, they don't have grape juice. So they've either got wine or they got nothing. And that was chapter one. Chapter 63. It's about God's vengeance on Edom. So I think there's this really interesting opportunity where the scriptures either read us or we read them, and, and I do want to always hold out that there's not a unilateral rate to read scripture. So I think we could say, hey, listen, this is all about us using drones in Pakistan to get even with those terrorists. I think we could read that. We could. I, I think it's like extremely wrong, <laughs> personally, for a lot of reasons, uh, and like even national security reasons, not in our best interest. Um, but, but this uh, is another opportunity, which is about pressure being applied to make wine out of us so that we don't rot 
because in the ancient world, if you don't make wine out of grapes, they're going to rot. And wine is more nutritious than grapes. So it's, it's about bringing out what's better in us. And that sometimes seems to take some pressure. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Again, I, I may sound really fruity and talking about grapes and a wine press. <laughs> but, I, but I think it's a really interesting thing. I'd rather be a diamond than a piece of coal. A lot of pressure on that coal. Yeah, some days I'd settle to be coal, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I just have to be honest. But I'm with you too. Settle to be just to be. Yeah. Uh, did, did you notice going on further uh, that, that uh, there won't be any more sacrifice or incense happening? This is this sort of vision. Remember, there's no temple, so you can't have those things. So there's this interesting thing about like what worship is supposed to look like. And every Lent on Ash Wednesday, we, we tend to read this bit about what a real fast is. Is it sackcloth and ashes? Is it depriving yourself of something? The answer is no. <laughs> it's about feeding poor people. It's about being just. That's the acceptable fast of the Lord. Um, that's just that's interesting. No, I think was it this church or another church? Did you drive by ashes? Yes. Uh, I don't drive by because that's like a gang thing. I mean, if I did drive by, I would sort of like throw some ashes at people and be like, "Bam! You repent! You repent! You can drive through." But I don't do drive bys. Yeah. Well. Being in an inner city, you know, drive-bys, we're like, oh my God, he's like driving. So, so, so I want you to think about that, actually. This is interesting, because I think this is about imagination and stretching. I think it is. And I think it would be really interesting to do drive-by baptisms. You're not going to like what I have to say, but I'm going to say it. Like, here comes the grace of the Lord. I don't want that too bad. And that's sort of how the grace of the Lord works. I'm actually really sure this is why we baptize babies, because they have no choice, and there's something really true about that. Well, bidden or unbidden, God's presence is fully on you, so here it is, and here's a symbol that you've got no choice over this luxury that will be with you your entire we'll go life. Go to confession once a, once a week or once a month, and that time was not was not a choice either. You, you know, every Friday, went up and everybody went. You know, Augustine of Hippo was elected bishop and made a priest against his will. He said, I don't want to do that. And the people said, we don't care. <laughs> the bishop ordained him with him saying no. So it's really interesting to think about drive-by baptisms. <laughs> well, they have drive-by viewing of the dead. And well, I think you have drive-through viewing of the do, dead. Do See, drive-by means violence. Not, yeah, and and in some ways, this is really interesting. <laughs> but this is the stretch, right? Yeah. God's vengeance is forgiveness. It's a drive-by baptism. I'm not saying I'm going to do that or we should. I know, I know, I know. And the only reason I used a drive-by because I had inner city schools that were such things as drive-bys. So so I'm sitting here thinking like maybe it's disrespectful to do a drive-by baptism. (laughs) But in some ways it's not. So the question is like how do you take the best part of that and do that? Do you know what I mean? Like how do you give 
drive-by grace and reconciliation. I mean, I think that's really the image and, and, here. And, and you, you know, the idea that that well, the perfect view of God is that I could just sit here or at home or somewhere and say an act of contrition and truly in my heart and, and spend five minutes or and really say, you know, this is what I've done, and I'm because you believe he's everywhere. Yes. At every time, at every place. But this is why we need the community, because God doesn't even need that. We need it. That's what I think. We need somebody, because we're physical people, to physically tell us God is finished with that. If you don't think you need that, I think you're deluding yourself. I think we need somebody. Again, we're embodied people. Salvation happens to and with and through our bodies. And so does forgiveness and reconciliation. That's why I do it every Now listen, that may be all you need on Sundays. And you may only need it once a year. But at some point, I think, when you're vulnerable with somebody and you say, I'm sorry, you need somebody to say, your apology helps. I don't know if we should ever say it's okay, but I think thank you for your apology. Without those words, it's like you've passed the ball and you don't know if they've caught it, stomped on it, intentionally missed it. And, and look, we don't live in our heads. No, I, what I meant with the okay was if you're saying it to a third person, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Session, uh, that you didn't commit a, do something wrong to that person that you said I, I did this thing wrong to my husband or I was whatever and he blesses you and forgives you in God's name you know I think we do that to each other without the clerical yes, stuff when we yeah, accept yes, apologies yes, or when we give yes, good yes, ones oh yes yes but, but yes. And, and, and I'm, I'm not trying to say you all need to schedule a confession with priest. That's not what I'm saying. No. I, I'm saying there is something really important about the physicality of this. And, and part of what I think the, the author does here imagine now, you know, through, imag through really tough stretching imaginative images, is he starts to include physicality that is often revolting to us. The eunuch is a revolting person at the time of the Bible. Now, not so much to us because, listen, we've got all kinds of clothes and that's in your business and whatever. So, so then the question is, what is revolting for you? And then you touch those people. I mean, for Francis, it was the leper, right? His real conversion moment came when he kissed the leper. Uh, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I, I mean, that's not my conversion moment. So, so, so what's yours? And it, let's not pretend like we're going to have one of them. Right, because that was the whole point of the sermon, which I may or may not have done well. Right, is that we have big moments that are milestones on a journey that we trod every single day. I mean, my one of my good friends talked about hiking the Pacific Rim Trail, and it took him six months to do that. And he talked about how a couple of times he saw a wild goat or this or that. That was a couple of times on a six thousand mile trail. Right, a lot of walking the trail. Is just walking a trail. I, I, I drove, I, I rode my bike across country from Oregon to, to Gloucester, Massachusetts, and I saw one mountain goat. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I really did do that. And, uh, I, I, and I, I, I can still remember the mountain goat and the, 
and the other thing was the rocks in, in, in Wyoming were amazing, the stone structures and the colors of the rocks and all that. And I bet you there were a lot of days where there was nothing, nothing. amazing at all. Nothing. And part of the journey, right, is that that's how it is. There's ordinary days, yes. and sometimes there's surprise. Like, I will have to tell you, sometimes I've been really dolorous and dour, and I've been surprised by joy, like some, because I can't control it. You know, thank I'll God for that. Analogy of the border. I think that's right. That is very helpful. <laughs> I, think I use that. Right. Say, say, say that again. The, he he the, used the analogy of big stones and the mortar in between. And what keeps? That's what keeps, keeps them in place, or they fall over. It's our it's our daily lives. The yeah the mundane. Oh, I'll just say one more thing about going cross country. I was I was so tired. I was, and I was separated from everybody else. There were forty of us, but we were all spread out. And these, a car went by, and there were four one. There were four girls in the car. One was driving, and the other three all stuck their heads up from their waists, waved at me. You go, girl. Well, of course I was like, get your asses back in that car. <laughs> what is wrong with you? But I'll never forget that moment of these three women doing that because they recognize here's this woman going across. She's got to be going a long way. And there was that connection with yes, others. There was un that came out of no joy, of presence. Yeah, no, there was <laughs> yeah. the presence, the joy. Yeah. 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 You know, another time a trucker came, came and he. he he, he haunts it like that. Yeah. He just, yeah. you know, I just knew what he was saying and what, what he meant by, by the tooting that horn. I don't know what I'm saying. I've had other people toot their horns on my bike, and it was the absolute opposite. And I knew that's what they were doing. Yeah. And yeah, talk about disconnection. But this, but this was a connection. It was not yeah. because... Isn't it funny how the same things can yes. mean totally different things? Yeah, but it was the way, yeah. the way he did his fist. Three toots is a good thing. Yeah. A one-two is get out of my way. It depends when they do. I'm, I'm not kidding you. Have I ruined the prophet or the, oh, or the things we've well, missed here? It's, it's been good. Yeah, I'll tell you one thing. When you talk about baptism, when I was a student nurse in a Catholic hospital, I baptized a lot of babies in the nursery that were not going to make it. They told us we could do that. Yeah, right. But when the one baby that I baptized got better, oh. and the parents, this was before babies were all out there. These were in the nursery, and the parents came to see them. And the parents said to somebody, it being wonderful, and I said, I really hope you believe that. And she said, well, of course I do. And I said, well, when the baby was really sick, I baptized and I hope that doesn't offend your Jewish sensitivities. They both started to laugh. You know, and they said, apparently it helped. And I thought, oh, I, you know, what have I done to these parents to make, because at those times they kind of thought that they would be raised as yeah. Catholic. Yeah. But I said, I think it was just Pray, because I used to pray a lot when I was in that nursery, you know, because 
It was God. So you said something I've been rolling over in my head for a couple of months, and it has to do with every single sacrament there is. And I think we usually only do it with communion. You know, there's these three big old words that we learned probably when we were taking European history. This is what I've told my fifth graders here about ways people have approached the Eucharist, right? So you, you learn this, right? Transubstantiation is when it turns into the body and blood, literally. Now, now you know, Catholic people know it didn't taste like blood, it didn't taste like flesh. So they use this um, the Aristotelian categories are um, accidents and essence. So the accidents don't change. The essence changes. Like the chemical formula is the blood of Jesus, but, but the expression isn't. But, the, but, the, but the, the chemical formula did change. Luther said no, but it's got the real presence of Jesus in it. The real presence. And then the symbolism is sort of, it only changes if you think it does. <laughs> right? So it's all about you. This is something changes we're not quite sure, right? And, and, and this is the one where we say like, hey, um, look, the bread nourishes your body and the wine nourishes your body. So like what's changed is that now it will also nourish your spirit. Imagine that. I mean, at the end of the day, like that's what it means. Uh, so, so, so this is about like demonstrable magic. And this is about the best kind of magic, is what I think. Now, listen, I don't hate transubstantiation. I, I, I don't mean it that way. But like, if you're a transubstantiationist, when I get ordained, I'm somehow chemically different as a priest. What's funny is if you're a transubstantiationist and you're ordained priest, you can unordain them. Can that doesn't un- work in my head. You can unordain you can, They can be defrocked. So a Catholic priest can't be defrocked. Yes. I cannot be defrocked. Even though we don't do transubstantiation in the Episcopal Church, we do, interestingly enough, say, uh, hey, hey, there is a lifetime change, but what it is we don't quite know. Baptism is one of those interesting things, right? You can be a transubstantiation Baptist, and the baby's original sin has changed or something like this, right? That there's demonstrable magic. And if the demonstrable magic isn't there, the magic didn't work. I think consubstantiation is about, and I'm biased because I'm an Episcopal priest, right? I think it's about the best kind of magic. Uh, Not the one with the most demonstrable results, the one with like a scent that, that has like the real presence of God, right? So what's the whole point of baptism? God is really present. What's the whole point of ordination? God is really present. <laughs> What's the point of marriage? God is really present. <laughs> In reconciliation, God is really present. Not wiping off a marker board is sin, but just really present. <laughs> That's the best kind of magic, right? I did not know that transubstantiation meant that, that it was accidental. It's not accidental, it's essential. 
No, no, because remember, the wine does not taste like blood. No, no, no. But it is. Yeah, so, okay, okay, okay I see what you mean. Okay, yeah, yeah. It, 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 and, and, and so, like, I think the real important phrase is, it is. Like, it's, it's, dem it's somehow it's demonstrable, and it's literal. Yeah. And, and this is really funny, because I think this way is really saying, it's essential, but it may not be literal. <laughs> Yeah, and, that's and that's where the words are funny because this is the word with essence. Okay. But this is, but it's about literal, and this is about. Um, I think this really interesting phrase that I learned from a seminary teacher who is Baptist: "It doesn't have to be true to be the truth." Yeah. I think consubstantiation is about that. It doesn't have to be literal to be true with a capital T. It doesn't have to be factual to be true with a capital T. Like To Kill a Mockingbird, that's made up. It's absolutely true. You, you, you know what I mean? And that's the real presence. I, I think so. Yeah, I have something. So I, I think something magical maybe happens because we don't worry too much about Alcoholics taking communion and falling off the wagon, or people getting food. We let them worry about that. We let alcoholics worry about that, and it's tough. It is tough. And the flu business is really interesting. Actually, nobody's ever gotten sick from that's, communion, that's, yeah. and it's much more dangerous to dip it than it is to drink from it because your fingers are a thousand times dirtier than your mouth. It's so long they say the metal. Oh. Silver. That's why we use silver. We have a clay set here they used to use in Lent. That is a public silver, health yeah. nightmare. We never use that again. It's exactly right because it's antibacterial. Right. Yeah. But, uh, okay. So, I mean, I think about things like You should. But I've discussed them with people before. It's apparently the alcoholics don't fall off the wagon. The priests that they can. The priest church Sunday. said that Sunday. they never had, in his knowledge, and he was big in the but, but. classes for AA, and he said that, you know, he had never had a case where the alcoholic went back to drinking from communion. They didn't have that. to do it. Yeah. Uh, I just everybody's different in that, but what I'm used to is alcoholics kiss the cup instead of drinking from it, or they just skip it. And the prayer book yeah, says right. the intention to consume is as good as consuming, yeah. and that's real magic, yes. not literal magic. It's but it's more than symbolism. That's the interesting yeah. thing. And in your yeah. heart, yeah. Yeah. Now I'm sure you go like, damn, that was when good wine. The, I'd like some more. Oh, and it's so good. You can't Let's talk about it next next time because that's directly related. Okay. When we read Haggai, hey, um, reminder: December fifth is our next meeting. Next week we won't be on Wednesday. It's Thanksgiving week. And then that following week, we're coming back on a Thursday, not a Wednesday. Oh, not a Thursday. I know, just one. It's a great question. That's a good question. Okay, so it's four.